This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and lucky for you, honestly, I have a returning guest, uh, returning guest for a part two. A while ago, we recorded a really straight talk to technicians. That was the title of it. I have a well-known, well-regarded shop owner, AMA Auto Service, none other than the Mr. Mr. Silverstein, Dutch to his all, all his friends. So therefore, it's Mr. Silverstein to me. Yeah, it was the same line used the last time. And it's a, once again, your memory fails. It's his exalted highness, the ruler of all he surveys, Captain Silverstein, Physician Silverstein, whatever it is you want to use. Yeah. I'm going to be much better about starting every sentence and ending every sentence with sir. <laughs> He's also a retired pilot captain for U.S. Airways. Uh, so a very unique perspective linking uh, auto repairs, specifically automotive technicians, uh, to pilots. And just a wealth of knowledge, common sense, and uh, but maybe best of all, honesty. I know I sound like I'm blowing a bunch of smoke up your tail, but I think I can back that up with some data. Thank you, sir, for joining me again. And since I'm handing out thank yous, I'd like to thank Napa Auto Care for sponsoring. Since its relaunch in 2020, the Napa Auto Care member site has continued to evolve to keep members updated on all the Napa programs, promotions, benefits, and other information available to help their businesses thrive. If you're a Napa Auto Care member, visit member.napaautocare.com to access the member portal. Not a Napa Auto Care Center? Contact your servicing Napa, Napa Auto Parts store to learn more about how to join the Napa family. All right. So last time we were, you were really shooting straight to the text. I've reached a point in my life. I just don't care. You know, it's, I care very much about that, which we do. I very care very much about the industry, but I've grown past the point where I really care what other people think of me. Um, and in a world of political correctness, and I just don't have time for it, you know? So if you're, that would be a great part three. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of stuff people aren't necessarily going to want to hear. So if you're looking for somebody who tells you what he thinks, irrespective of any potential fallout, that's me. If you want to hate me, just get an early start. Uh, begin now. Avoid the rush later on. Uh, that's okay. There's a long line. What I wanted to, to talk about was um, the last discussion that we had, we, we went over the leverage that technicians have now and questions that they could ask a prospective employer. And I wanted to go over some financial education with them. And no, this isn't going to be an accounting class and I'm not going to have long drawn out stuff um, like that. That's not the purpose of this. Uh, the purpose is so that when a tech goes in to a job, he knows what questions to ask, some of which we asked uh, in the last episode. And he knows how to interpret the data so that he can find his place in that facility and, and know that what he's asking for, if he wants a raise or if he's going to a new location, he should be able to know how his pay actually works. I, I think it's really important. A, yeah, we kind of brought it up in part one, the straight talk to technicians. But also, you know, I'm definitely not looking to derail this thing, but it just seems 
lately, especially social media, we're seeing more and more open discussion about wages and compensation packages. And they're talking real numbers or fake numbers made up for social media, but they're actually tossing out dollar amounts. And I'm seeing a lot of resentment growing, maybe sometimes appropriate. I think a lot of times wildly inappropriate because they're not considering regions, cost of living, uh, individual shops that we have some arbitrary numbers tossed out of what somebody should be able to make in one region that might be very, very reasonable in another region, maybe not so much and not, not required either, you know, for due to the cost of living. And then some places, this number we've come up with, you'd be in poverty. You'd need four families living in a two bedroom apartment to make ends meet. So, um, so I think this subject is extremely important to kind of gauge where you're at. And, you know, I know it's a scary term to say should, but just kind of have an idea and maybe temper some of that resentment a little bit. Without being able to have the proper perspective, you really don't know what it is you're looking at. I mean, that's, you know, in, in aviation, there was a, an expression when you were flying IMC, when you were flying in the clouds and you had the weather radar that was painting in front of you. There was an expression that said, one peak is worth a thousand sweeps because what you could see was far greater of greater value than the information that was displayed on the scope. You, you could see it on the scope, but it was more readily interpreted when you actually got to see outside and you could see where, where everything was. Was the radar accurate? What was the height? that might not necessarily have been represented. What, you know, there are a lot of, there's lots of bits of information that you can get. And what I hope is that when techs look at this, especially if you've never questioned it, they are able to gain a different perspective as to why their wages are the way that they are, what they mean, how that those figures were arrived at. And, you know, I, I want techs to earn as much as, as they can I'm not saying I'm not trying to suppress raises, uh, raises or wages. I'm trying to increase them. I want, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. But you have to be realistic. You have to be realistic. And what I mean by that is you have to understand what goes into the wage and benefit package that you're getting. And most techs don't. They have no idea about the cost. They don't know any of that. So, and then when you factor in because... There's the wage that the tech is paid. Then there's the benefit package that adds on to that wage. And then there are issues of productivity. And productivity affects cost. If the tech doesn't understand that, he thinks, well, and I, the example that I said is a, a tech who comes into a facility at $20 an hour. And for the sake of this discussion, we're going to call this Matt's Garage. Sounds great. Sounds like a really good place. <laughs> Except the owner is really super cheap. I mean, uh, he's just, uh, you know, he's very, very frugal. So we're going to pretend in Max uh, Make Believe Garage that this tech is on hourly or salary. And the reason I'm starting off with this first is because the math is a lot easier. There's not very few variables with regard to this. And it's something that anybody in the audience can grab a quick piece of paper and run out. Or you can just kind of think about this in your mind, round numbers. If a tech comes in, whatever grade he is, I'm not advocating, but you know, that's whatever. And he costs $20, he says to the boss, I want $20 an hour. 
Buff That Tech is going to be there for 40 hours a week. That's $800 a week. Makes sense, right? Okay, $800 a week times 52 weeks a year is $41,600 per year in costs. Now, in, in Matt's land of make-believe, there are no taxes, no wages, no nothing. We know that that tech costs $20 per hour. Cool. But the reality is that Matt, the employer, has got expenses that he needs to incur in order to employ that technician. So if we look at it, the wage and benefit packages, again, the wage and benefit package beginning with $20 an hour, well, what does they have to pay? Well, depending on the state, workman's comp. Then there's FICA, which is a Federal Insurance Contribution Act, FUDA, which is a Federal Unemployment Tax Act, SUDA, which is a State Unemployment uh, Tax Act. And when you add them up, we're going to choose an, a, an approximate total of 11.5%. Now, on top of that, although he doesn't offer it, other shops offer disability, can offer disability insurance, health insurance, holiday pay, sick time, training, tuition for college uh, credits, uniforms, vacation and retirement contributions. All of those additional expenses have to be covered by the revenue the business takes in as a direct result of labor. Nothing else. You can't take parts revenue and a portion, a portion, a uh, part of that parts revenue to the labor. It has to be self-contained. If you're doing that, it, the system's broken. Yeah. Okay. So depending on the amount of the benefits, you can see that that adds between an additional 10 to 25% of the wage. So the federal government and state government is going to be getting an 11.5%. And in, if we've all started, I can't say we all, but we, many of us have started in a place where they didn't provide uniforms. You brought your stuff from home and then you washed it at, at home, right? You had your blue jeans and your, your T-shirt. They didn't provide much anything at all with regard to there was no retirement. There was no health insurance. There was no holiday pay. There, there wasn't anything, right? Okay, if we use that, depending on the amount of benefits, at a 20% cost, in other words, another 10% onto that which we had, now you've got the $20 an hour guy is costing you 24 bucks an hour, right? Because you got the tax load plus your benefit load. Now, let's look at it. At 25%, it's $25 an hour. At 30%, it's 26 bucks an hour. At 35%, it's $27 an hour. That total amount per hour is known as your loaded labor rate. Labor rate of 20, benefit package combined, loaded labor rate. So if we look at it, and we're taking $20 an hour times 40 hours a week, $800 a week is $41,600 a year. Okay? 40 hours a week times 52 weeks is 2,080 hours that he's available for work and is paid because he's paid for 40 hours a week. All right. And the proof of that, obviously, is forty one thousand six hundred dollars divided by two thousand and eighty hours, 20 bucks an hour. Except that in this case, we're going to say that the tech has after one year, one week vacation. So he's paid for 40 hours, but he doesn't have to be there. He's got five paid holidays. So he's got Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, New Year's Day, Memorial Day and the Fourth of July. Those are paid holidays. Shops closed. He's not there. 
If it was really mine, uh, I would give them all your birthday off too. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, old guy day. Um, (laughs) Okay, so we're assuming that, um, and I've just done this simply for the sake of this discussion. He has the shop is closed for five days a year for training. They get somebody to come in, or they go to a local class, and the shop shuts down. Shops do this, and they have five PTO days, day off that you could use for sick, whatever. Okay. Well, if we take that 2,080 hours and we minus 160 hours, because that's four weeks for which you're getting paid, the tech is getting paid, but he's not producing revenue, that alone, without anything else, that his wage at $21 goes to, uh, at $20 an hour goes to $21.67. Without anything else, in this example, let's say that that very same tech is 100% efficient. Now, for the purpose of discussion, for guys that, that because these terms, efficiency and productivity, are bandied about, and some people assi- ascribe different meanings to them. When we say we're talking about technician efficiency, we're saying that if he is allotted four hours for the job and he does it in four hours, he is 100% efficient. If he does it in two hours, he's 200% efficient. If it takes him eight hours on a four-hour job, he's 50% efficient. So we're going to say that this tech consistently is 100% efficient and that the fact that he doesn't have eight hours worth of work a day has absolutely nothing to do with him. His behavior, his ability to produce the work efficiently without comebacks is unparalleled. But there are problems with parts availability getting approvals. So for every eight hours that he's at the job, he's only getting six hours worth of productivity, which is 75%, right? 70, okay. Do you know what the, Matt, you know what the national average for productivity in, in independent shops across the country is? I'm going to just swag. I don't even, it's not even con- considered a swag. There's no science involved. I'm going to say 50%. 65%. Oh, wow. But I'm going to give and say that, that the shop is 75%. Now, where did I get the figures? It's fair to ask. Vin Waterhouse, wonderful man, has, he polls, there are 18,000 Napa Auto Care Centers in the country, and there's a certain amount of them that are polled. All the information from their P&Ls is sent in. There's an unspecified number. He doesn't share that with anybody. All the information is redacted, so we can't tell who it was, and tires are brought out of it in order to make sure that everything is, is fair and on, and on level. In this case, if that tech is on the property available for work for eight, but he turns out six, he's 75% productive. So that means that he is going to be producing 30 hours of work per week for 48 weeks, right? Because he's getting four weeks off between five vacation days, his vacation training, and everything else. Okay. So if we take, just doing the math, the $41,600, and we divide that by 1,440 build hours that are effective, in other words, that he actually billed to someone else, the cost, his cost on that is $28.80. He costs that owner, even though the owner the technician says, I'm getting 20 bucks an hour. The actual cost to the owner is $28.80. I don't feel so cheap anymore. Well, that's just at 20%. Wait, see what happens when you wind up getting into 25 and 30%. And now with the competitive environment that exists in the workplace, uh, 
those loan numbers have gone by the wayside. More and more shop owners I talk to when I go to classes, when I just talk to, to, to people, it's they're looking between 30 and 35% because they're offering more. Increased wages, right, means increased cost. They're offering retirement plans. They're offering a lot of stuff that I didn't have. Some companies are picking up medical benefits in their entirety because they want to keep staff. Most of the, the, the guys that I know are paying half, but some of them pay all of it and they pay dental and vision, right? They have simple IRAs that they're contributing to. They're helping them with budgeting. They're in, the expenses related to each employee are in fact increasing. Let's look at 25. If he's $25 at 100% turning eight hours a day, What's his labor cost per day if he's 75% productive at six hours? Well, let's do the math. Eight hours a day, his daily cost is 200 bucks, right? $25 an hour times eight hours, 200 bucks. Cool. But he's only producing 75%. He's billing out six hours. His actual cost is $33.33. That's not, that's a big difference. So when you add that, and you combine it with the cost of productivity plus the cost of his wage and benefit package, his loaded labor rate, you can see that he's not costing 20 or $25 an hour anymore. It's a lot more money. And because expenses have risen so dramatically in the operation of the business, you know, we laughed about it the last time, but, and I would love, I would love to be able to pay my tax 50%. I really would. And, I'd like to harken back to the days of the 70s when I was learning and doing this stuff. That would be awesome. I'd like to buy my house at the rate that we had in the 70s. And if I could go gas and pay some of the early 70s gas prices and I can get my milk and groceries at the prices in the 70s. You didn't have Identifix back in the 70s. We had manuals. You didn't have all data. You didn't have subscriptions that you had to each of the manufacturers so that you can do reflashing. You didn't have ADAS. You didn't have, you didn't have, you didn't have. And the costs have risen dramatically. When we look at it, this is why employers love flat rate. This is why guys really, really push for flat rate. And the way they sell it to the employee, to the tech is you are not limited in how much you can earn. If you're money motivated, you can go out and you want to earn, you want to turn 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, 20 hours a day, whatever you want, have at it. That benefits both of them. But the reason is that it reduces their payroll liability. Yeah, because it pretty much sets the gross profit. What you're doing, you're, you're exactly setting what you're going to do for the day. The, now, there is a caveat, and that is that um, in certain states, and this happened because of dealerships, it used to be that a tech would go to a dealership and he'd be there for two hours out of a 10-hour day and he'd get paid two hours. And the Department of Labor said, look, that's just not cool. You can't do that. They total up the hours and whichever the hours that he puts in or uh, minimum wage, whichever is higher, he has to have a minimum per that day and that pay period. You can't have somebody going to uh, work at a shop and have him turn 13 hours for the week and get paid 13 hours because business is slow. You know, it's, it's just not ethical. So if we know that the national average is 65% and you know, guys that may have heard different figures on this, 
It's 65% is the highest percentage I'd actually ever heard. This is why targeting text for 125 or 150% efficiency is so important, especially now when we're waiting on parts forever. And you may have four different uh, phone numbers from your employee, uh, from your clients, <laughs> and they don't respond. You lose time all the time. You know, parts coming in that are wrong. We're not even going to talk about because I'm giving techs 100% credit and saying that they're acting perfect. But the reality is we all know, guys, that the tool trucks come by and there's 20 minutes on the tool truck, you know. Um, three or four times a week. Three or four times a week. And there's smoke breaks and there's cell phone calls and there's 20-minute trips to the bathroom because you think somebody's dying, you know, <laughs> inside. When uh, while they're on their cell phone, you know, I was always thinking about putting a Faraday cage inside. <laughs> so if you want to go in there, bring in your phone, you're not getting, you know, it's I'm just going to line it with wire mesh and you're not going to be able to, to, to be able to use it. You know, it's ridiculous. So there are a lot of, again, I, I want to give the text the benefit of doubt, even in the best case scenario. So when we're looking at, at that, we have to determine, really, we're going to have to take our base pay plus add uh, the wage and benefit package. That's the figure that winds up becoming our loaded labor rate. To that, we have to add production penalties, right? Because again, if you're only 75% productive and you have a guaranteed salary, your cost rises. Make sense? I'm not trying to bore anybody here. I just want guys to understand that if you're coming into a place and you want $25 an hour, that's cool. Right off the top with a 30% benefit wage and benefit package on that because you're working, you want to work in a good place that's air conditioned and has all sorts of nice stuff. You get 30% on 25. That's $7.50. So there's your 32.50 is what you're costing your boss for the hour. Now, if you're 75% productive, add that. That's what you're costing him per hour or her. You're on a really good roll. I just think this is straight talk. This is the reality. This is the other side of the, the counter or, you know, the front of the front of the business, it could be too easily interpreted as running to the shop owner's aid. I don't think that's it. I think this is, these are the numbers. This is how this works. This is how, this is the load that you potentially put on the business. And now you have to offset that with production. While we are in a consumer driven business, a service business at its heart, it's fundamental core, what we are as a production based business. And if you really want to look at it and take a hard look at it, flat rate is the equivalent, the automotive equipment of piecework out of a factory, right? What we're going to do, the product that we're delivering is a serviced and or repaired car. The means by which we do that is the billable hour. Each billable hour has a cost associated with that. We haven't even talked about the effective labor rate yet. You know, I mean, people walk in and say, well, gee, I'm getting $20 an hour and you have uh, a posted labor rate of $100 an hour. You're making 80 bucks more than I am. Uh, no, that's not how that works. You, you want to go over labor rate versus posted versus effective versus segmented versus how do you want me to handle it? I mean, I'm game for everything because I think it's important that the posted labor rate doesn't mean necessarily what you think it does, especially when you consider the things you're talking about, the effective labor rate. What's the loaded rate? Like the production 
that 75%, 65%, that's a big factor in that effective labor rate. And then we're, we still haven't even addressed, there's costs of doing business. You know, the, the shop, the shop owner, the managers, they're not pocketing this extra uh, $80 an hour. It could be significantly less. Most of the time in independence, and it's not uncommon. I can't say most because I don't, I haven't seen the books of every independent. Let's just say with frequent enough time when I'm helping other shops, uh, when I'm mentoring shop owners and, and talking with them and going over their financials with them, what you see is that the owner is the last to get paid. That's simply the way it is. Now, does that happen with the franchises? No, not really. But there's a different mindset with a franchise where the policies, procedures, and systems are set in stone. A lot of times the independent doesn't have the same policies and procedures, doesn't have employee manuals, doesn't have that. And they're kind of flying by the seat of the pants all the time. And a lot of time there are former techs that wanted you know, $20 an hour, didn't get it, saw the posted labor rate at $100 an hour and said, well, I will open my own shop and I'll make $80 an hour and I will hire my techs at 20 because I'm a tech and I know they deserve it. And then a month in, two months in, six months in, reality hits. Guys stressing out, divorce, alcoholism, uh, it's bad. I mean, let's go over the the concept of posted labor aid versus effective labor. And we're going to touch about the baseline of this because we can go into effective labor aid pretty deep if you want. When someone has, and again, I'm using rounding numbers. I'm not advocating that you do this. I'm not telling you this that you should. This should be, but we're again, we're going to use a rounded labor rate of $100 an hour because the math is easy. Okay, so you have $100 an hour as your posted labor rate, and you have the technician who has billed out 40 hours of labor. And we're just going to say he's the only tech. It's you. You're doing it. You're the only tech. 40 hours times $100, you should have $4,000 in revenue at the end of the week. Do you agree? Because 40 times 100 is 4,000 insofar as labor revenue. We're not including parts. Okay. So now you go and you add up everything and you see your receivables are paid. Nobody owes you money. We're going to pretend for that week everybody paid you exactly. on. You didn't have to wait for any money. Every bill that went across the counter was paid immediately. You see that you got $3,200. Wait a minute. Where'd it go? Because if we take the, the 40 hours and divide it into 3200 I got 80 bucks an hour as my effective labor rate, don't I? It may say on the wall that I got 100 but in the actual register, I only have 3200 which means 80 bucks an hour. Where did it go? Well, some of that is a problem with the front office. Emotional discounting. Right? Oh, here's Mrs. Jones. You know, she's a single mother of two and owns three chimpanzees and then drives a Dodge. So we have to give her the most that we possibly can. Right. So there you go. And now we're going to give the police, fire department, teachers, your uncle Floyd, everybody in a some. Okay, that's one set of discounts. It's going, we went to school. They're going through a tough time. You're a good person. You want to you want to help. Okay. And then there are operations where the tech gets paid more than the shop collects. In North Carolina, for example, we do state inspections. When you do a state inspection, it takes longer than the tech is paid for less than the time it takes. But he's still, right, it's still generating. So what do you do? He's not, it's taking him longer. You're paying him, right, but you're not collecting it. So that's your effective labor rate. Your effective labor rate 
in its simplest, most truest form is looking at how much revenue compared to how many hours built. Now, there's a variation on that that says, okay, let's look at our effective labor rate with time that's the customer actually or the technician actually spent working. That's a different set of calculations. And then there's the last, which is the effective labor rate uh, versus opportunity cost. If you're working on a comeback where the tech isn't getting paid and the shop isn't getting paid, but you have a car outside that could be using that time to produce revenue, that's a cost. And you have to figure that in. All right. So that's the, the, effective, it's very, very simple. And it's, you know, I almost wish we could have a webinar on this because um, I, it's a lot easier for people to envision when they see it as opposed to hear it. Number one, I don't have a good voice for this crap. And uh, two, so, you know, it's math. So people's eyes are rolling back in their head uh, when it comes down to this. You're using nice round numbers. The percentages are easy to figure out. The numbers are tangible. And again, the reason in the examples that I put is because we don't have to wind up doing a lot of mental arithmetic with, okay, so if you have flat rate. Maybe even more important than the actual number dollar is the concept of what you're talking about. Is that, if that gets hammered home, as important, if not more important than the actual numbers that we're talking about or that you're talking about, the concept, the concept is very important to grasp. Now let's look at that because when we have, and one of the things that, that, really makes me shake my head and really at times it infuriates me is giving away or improperly charging for testing historically. Now things have changed, but historically, again, being numbers is easy. The way to look at it is if you had a hundred dollars worth of labor, if you're at a hundred dollars an hour for labor, you would have an accompanying $100 sale of parts. It was 50, 50 on average. So when you're doing testing and there are no parts that are being sold, if you still charge that $100, have you made money the same or lost money? You lost money, right? You lost money because you don't have that other income stream. You don't have any parts, right? And what we see happening and is that because of the, the big box chains, we see people who believe a diagnosis is something that the handheld $69 code reader, which you know, you've talked about before, provides when it's not. A diagnosis is a result of careful methodical testing by a seasoned professional that arrives at an irrefutable conclusion, one that can be proven beyond contestation. That's what a diagnosis is. And the only way to arrive at that diagnosis is through proper testing, including diagnosis by exclusion. Techs will get upset and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. An hour's worth of labor is $100, but you're charging $150 for this diagnostic or this testing routine. You're stealing from me. I'm not getting paid. If that was $150 on anything else, I'd be making more money because they don't understand the concept of gross profit. A pretty good segue. What do you think? Very good, because I don't think a lot of people know gross profit. I think they probably associate it with more with markup, dollar amount markup, and not the actual gross profit. So, you know, to maybe toss it back to you, 100% gross profit is impossible to hit. Otherwise, you'd have to gain the part for free. And then I think any dollar amount you might You have to it. get the part for free, which means it comes from Midnight Auto. 
(laughs) (laughs) Or you could get 100% gross profit um, if you wound up doing your labor free. It's all profit, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, see, for me, I make every time I work on a car because it's 100% gross profit for me. Because I don't charge money. <laughs> you know, I'm, on the, I'm not on the books for that. I'm the, I'm the owner. <laughs> you know, I mean, the computer is a tech, but I don't. The company makes all that money. Don't pay me nothing. I'm an indentured servant is what it is. And fortunately, I don't get out on the floor very much because I'm pathetic when it comes to speed. I'm glad we have that in common. That makes me feel much better. I was never fast to begin with. Even in my prime, I was thorough. And now I'm just slow. I mean, really slow. You know, I go to to bend down to set a lift arm and I'm looking around for something that I can prop up that I can help me get back up. My knees are just like you ran cross country for too long. Schnook. You know, this was not a good idea. Oh, the knees and yeah, you know, you wind up getting old. Are you a repair shop owner? Do you find yourself struggling with any of the following? Uncertainty about the future and competition. Are you spending too much time managing chaos and struggling with new employees? Do you lack time to invest in learning best practices? Or there's no time to spend on effective marketing? How do your finances look? Are you reactive rather than proactive? Do you know where you should be? When to grow? When to shrink? If any of those situations describe where you are today, you are finally in the right place. Repair Shop of Tomorrow is Napa Auto Care's newest endorsed partner. They are helping shops all over the nation run more profitable automotive repair shops by utilizing proven business best practice marketing and coaching to leverage Napa programs to drive quality, car count, sales, and profits. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will look at productivity, efficiencies, effective labor rate, average hours per car, labor profit percentage, measure and manage labor, and how you can create net profit. Team up with coaches to create systems, operations, and procedures using a business flowchart to help you reach your goals. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will help measure and manage the results to help each business succeed. Best of all, it's not do-it-yourself. It's all done for you. Their goal is to help dealers do what they do best, fix cars and build relationships at the counter and in the community. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will take the other minutiae off your plate. The Repair Shop of Tomorrow offers a tier-based program to not only generate more business today, but to transform your shop into a top-level shop of tomorrow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow can teach you how to make your shop profitable. They can teach you how to recruit and how to make more labor dollars for your shop. Interested in Repair Shop of Tomorrow? Call 440-545-1230 for a free 20-minute no-obligation consultation or contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. Okay, so gross profit, anytime you have, you buy something, the difference between what you buy and what you sell it for is your gross profit. So if you have an item that you bought for five and you sell it for 12, your gross profit is seven bucks. Seems simple. But what happens is people confuse markup and margin. And this, this is a real problem. When you have an item and you markup refers to the end result of marking up from cost. So if we have an item for $5 and we mark it up 50%, we're going to sell that item for $7.50, of which $2.50 is going to be our gross profit. 
But when we have that same $5 item and we want to have a 50% gross profit margin, what are we going to sell it for, Matt? You're going to double it. 10 bucks. Exactly right. What happens is a lot of times guys, and we see this all the time, they start, they don't use a parts matrix. So they start buying parts and they double it. Not a problem. Cost me five bucks. I'm going to sell for 10. Cost me 20. I'm going to sell for 40. And if that was kept across the board, they would have a 50% gross profit on parts. And they'd be hitting kind of a, I don't know, somewhat generally accepted goal. You know, it's not perfect. Benchmark, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You know, now because of the cost of everything associated with business, the target has moved up where you want a 60% GP average to 65%. So you're looking at 55% to 60% GP on parts and 70% on labor. You want to shoot for those targets because you, you'll settle for less. And the reason you do that is because if you think about it, it's so it's easy to take a part that costs three bucks and sell it for six. Easy. 20, sell it for 40. You can do it. Not a problem. Now go buy a transmission for $2,200 and turn around and flip it for 44. You're not doing it. You might make three, five, six hundred $600 on it, but you're not going to double so what that does over the course of time is that brings down your gross profit margin average. What many shops have done is institute, and all the successful shops, really successful, they institute a parts matrix. And the parts matrix says, we're going to make more gross profit on smaller items. So we're not going to, if, uh, if we want to make 60% on a $10 part, we're not going to charge 20, we're going to charge 25 because we want to make up for the fact that we're going to sell bigger components and we're not going to make the money. Additionally, that also happens when people buy parts from the dealer. The dealer prices in some cases with people is untouchable. The dealer says, I can't make any more money than that. That's it. If, if, I, if the dealer's charging 100 and I charge 120, I'm ripping people off. Really? Yeah. Well, why don't we call three dealerships in the area and give them the same part number and ask them what their list price is for all three? Three different answers. I buy parts at, uh, out of South Carolina because one of the dealers in town here marks up prices, the retail price, and then says, well, I'm going to give you your 20% back, you know, because the retail on this is 120. You're going to have 20% uh, percent off. On the 120, so it's 24 bucks. It's going to cost you 96. When the real price is is 100, and I normally would be paying 80, right? But so it, it's a game that they wind up playing. Plus, the question that you ask, have to ask yourself is, do I provide better value than my dealer? Is my dealer trustworthy? Have you ever called? You know, watch your service writer, or if you're uh, an owner, a tech who, who's an owner, anybody ever call you and say, "I'm trying to uh, compare the price on X, Y, or Z." Um, I'm at the dealer now, and this is what they tell me it's going to cost. First question out of your mouth can be, and often has been for me. Let me ask you a question right quick. Uh, Thanks for the call. Why aren't you having them do it? Do you trust them? So if you don't trust them, do you offer a trustworthy service as a shop owner? Do you have a warranty that they don't? Right? I mean, because my dealer here, one of my dealers has a 12-month, 12,000-mile warranty. My warranty is 336, and it's nationwide. My dealerships that are around here all operate on commission. I don't have a commission structure in my shop. It doesn't matter to my service writer um, if he sells $5,000 worth of stuff for one day 
or he just checks air and tires for every car. It, there's no, the bonus is for him is maintaining margins. It's not for bringing, I don't need a guy selling 10 sets of tires a day to line his pockets in doing that. So for me, you know, and that's kind of a different subject, but um, for the most part, I don't worry about what the dealer and people charge and people say, well, you know, that's more than a dealer. And you're right. It is. I think we really used to, they were kind of like that ceiling, if you will, that threshold, we just couldn't breach their labor rate was 150 an hour. All right. We're going to probably have to set ours at 140, 145, something under 150. And if the cost to do this job there is a thousand dollars, we better figure out how to get our price under that. It better be nine, nine fifty. And that maybe the last three years or so don't care anymore. So don't care. BMW dealer in my area. Now I haven't checked recently, but the last time I checked, which was I think within the last year, had a heritage price of $99 an hour for working on older BMWs, 99 bucks an hour. That's a steal. <laughs> Sublet. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that's great. Someone says, but the deal is going to charge $99 an hour for that. Well, then I think you ought to go there because I'm not working on your, you know, 65 <laughs> for that. I'm just, I'm not. So the seven series. Yeah. You may have done it for years. I first heard about it from Frank. Yeah. Frank Scandura. Yeah, exactly. His charges a higher rate. So he has a tiered labor rate for vehicles older than I think 20, 25 years. We started doing it and it's not so much because the guys, you know, the techs are taking longer because they're so rusty, which can be the case, but it's really not. Usually when we get that really older car like that, they're kept in pretty decent condition. It's the time the service advisor needs to find parts to try to get some kind of a return on that. And uh, another little help, right, to kind of keep driving up that effective labor rate, if you will. Yeah, well, the more time is spent, you know, when you look, and that leads the, into the step pricing for effective labor rate, too, because I do inspections here, and I could do, and they're $30, and I could do four of them an hour. That means that my revenue for that hour is $120 in gross revenues, that's not going to pay the bills. I'm not selling any parts. That's one of the things that, all right, so that's the labor rate there. That's an effective rate that you have to work with. Let's continue to talk terminology. All right, so ARO is average repair order. Average repair order is listed two ways. You should have to know what your ARO is in, in dollars, and you have to know what your ARO is in time because, again, if you go into a, a shop, and we briefly touched on this the last time, and you see that they have uh, a lot of cars and low ARO, you have to ask yourself why. What is it that they're doing? What are they pumping out? Are they not doing – are they focused more on volume than they are addressing the legitimate needs and concerns of the customer maintaining that vehicle on the road safely? What is it that they're avoiding? Are they not doing – inspections on each car car comes in for brakes they're just doing brakes and ship it because one of the things that we found is that the busier the shop the actual the aro the average repair order drops 
because it's busy and the guys want to get the work in and they want to get it out. And there's a lot of pressure because we got people that we promised we're going to get their car back today or they're waiting in the waiting room and they want to get that car. Right. So there's the ARO. Yeah. Again, not like trying to set up a tangent, but also when the phone's ringing, people want their car in ASAP. A lot of times management has a very difficult time saying no. They're worried to say, we're booking out two weeks and the potential of losing that. I don't want to say necessarily lose the customer, but lose that job. It's like, oh, bring it in, bring it down. We'll, we'll, we'll get it in. And like you're saying now, maybe it's the afternoon started and you've realized there's still a boatload of cars out there that you've promised. It's like, Hey guys, we got to step it up. Um, you know, skip the inspections. And, and it really does start tanking the numbers, not just, for that week, but it starts to carry over because now you don't have the good inspections anymore. You don't have the photos and the digital inspection to email or text. And one of the strategies that someone came up with many, many years, it was Gary Gunn. I always get Greg Sands and, and Gary Gunn came up with many, many years ago was to always say yes, because they recognized that productivity was low. So the object was, to load up the shop because the faster the shop was able to pay down its fixed expenses or its overhead, the faster they would start to get into profit. If you know, there's what's called the power exchange. And that is that when you're running a facility that uses that particular philosophy of just get the customer across the door, they know that they're going to be it's going to be slow time for techs, and they're going to push them to get the work in in order to get into the profit segment of the month. In the industry, when I was coming up, there was an expression, and that was that the first three weeks of the month cover your overhead, the last week covers your profit. Well, if you can get enough work in so that your techs are busy and you can load them, you can start getting backing that up. So now it's not the last week. It's the last eight or nine days of that's doing it because you're getting the value that's in and you want to establish yourself in that. So what they do is they have the power exchange, whatever. And this is like a separate, <laughs> but the object is to get the person across the threshold and hand you the keys. Once they handed you the keys, you hold the power, get them in a loaner, call them an Uber, call them a tab, a cab. Tell them which bus route that they need to go on. But whatever it takes, get that car through the door because you have to pay down your fixed expenses. Which brings us to some more basic expenses and how you determine what it is you're going to wind up, how a shop owner determines what he's going to wind up needing per hour. And there are several different formulas in doing this. A new shop owner versus a when it's been in business for less than a year as a new shop owner, when it's been in business for more than a year, how do that, I know what to charge. That's a legitimate question. And there are several different ways that you can configure this. And the easiest is really to start based on actual expenses. What happens when setting labor rates for most historically, and we know guys that have done this, they say, okay, the guy up the street from me, is at $100. He's the guy on my left. The guy on my right, he's at uh, 80. I'm going to be at 90. I don't want to be higher. I don't want to be lower. I'm going to be right in the middle. 
This is known, and Mitch Schneider called this the Oreo cookie method because he was just going to be right in the middle, the stuff in the middle. In aviation, long before there was coverage, when we were flying uh, the Red Eyes back from the West Coast, we would request TLAR direct from the West Coast back, going back to Charlotte. And TLAR stood for, that looks about right. You would take a heading when you left the West Coast. <laughs> And then as you were flying, he knew, with, yeah, we'd like to go TLR direct because it wasn't, you know, there, there was as much traffic at night as there was during the day. So you had a lot more, you know, three o'clock in the morning, you, you had a lot more latitude to do what you wanted to do. Yeah. TLR direct. I'll never forget it. Looks about right. That looks about right. <laughs> and then you adjust your course depending on where the wind and the weather was. Center, we need to, you know, we need to turn left 15 degrees for weather. Roger, Piedmont, clear, you know. But that's the wrong way of doing it. The way to, to base that an owner, a proper owner, will base their hourly labor rate is based on one way is expenses plus desired profit. And then you have to divide that into billable hours and multiply it by two. Because I'm going to give absolute credit to where this one comes from, because Becky Witt wrote this up far better than than I could. I have a separate way that I do it that's based off of fixed expenses and gross profit percentage. But I'm going to actually read this and kind of summarize it real quick. So most expenses can be divided into fixed and variable expenses. Fixed expenses for a business are, are expenses that they have to pay irrespective if they have one customer at the door or a million of them. It's the cost of staying open. Like what? Well, your rent. Well, your mortgage, if you if you own the business, your utilities, your subscription fees, the things that you have to have. If you have to have front office staff, they're not tied to production. They have to be paid. Whether one person shows up or nobody, they have to be paid. Your insurance has to be paid. You don't get to call up the insurance company every day and go, okay, look, we got customers now. Put me back on the insurance. And then the next day, <laughs> we're kind of slow. Can you take me? You know, you can't wind up doing that. for a variable rate. Then there are variable expenses. Well, variable expenses are expenses that rise or vary with the work that comes in. Let's think of an easy one. The busier you are, what happens to your credit card paper? The more credit card paper you use, it's a variable expense, right? Some people believe that marketing is a variable expense because they they fine-tune their marketing. It's not the same every month. I look at it as more being a fixed expense. That is – so anything that you're going to wind up doing that is directly – let's say you, for example, write thank, handwritten thank you notes for every customer. Well, you don't have the same amount of customers every week, every month. So the expense incurred with that, if you have any outside service to it, rises and falls. The postage rises and falls. The actual fee that you're paying the individual to do it rises and falls if you're paying somebody by the hour to generate these these notes, etc. Okay, so basically, again, what we're going to wind up doing is taking all of our expenses. We're going to take our fixed and variable expenses, depreciation, loan payments, anything related to the operation of that business, the owner's wages. The owner's got to get paid, not payment at the end of the year, the owner's salary, and finally, a reasonable return on investment. A guy goes out of his way to, to mortgage his house, borrow as much money as he can, have the deferred gratification he wants to see or she wants to see a return on that money. Now, how do we determine what realistic owner's wages are? Well, realistic owner's wages would be what you would have to pay to have somebody do your job. 
that's a realistic saying. Well, my realistic owner's wages is, is five hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> that's great, but you're not paying somebody five hundred thousand dollars a year, and and you can't say well, my realistic owner's wages thirty thousand dollars a year if you're running legitimate. You're not going to find somebody who's going to replace what you do for thirty thousand dollars a year. Okay, and owners have to remember to always pay themselves first. Okay, so now you have a number. That number is your break-even number. It's also called your nut in slang. You need to know what it's going to take to crack that nut. And in order to do that, you're going to have to determine how many available hours you have to sell or provide your service. And the nut becomes the minimum after you paid for your parts and your technicians. We looked at our expenses. We calculated the nut. Again, all fixed variable expenses, owners, uh, loan payments, owners, uh, salary, etc., you need to take your build hours and divide them into that overhead or that large expense, to, uh, that nut to determine the next step. So if we assume that a gross profit is 50%, remember what we were talking about gross profit, right? You buy something for six, you sell it for 12, your gross profit is six. That means our cost of goods is half of sales. So when a part's sold, the gross profits would have left over to pay for the part. Okay. And this also works for technician wages. If you charge $100 an hour for labor, then the tech wages have to be subtracted. And the result is your labor gross profit for that tech. What you need to do is when people think about it, the first thing they want to do is they want to take their expenses and divide it by their billed hours. But that doesn't work because your gross profit is only half of your sales. So what do you have to do? You have to double your sales. All right. So if your gross profit is 50%, double the hours, and that's the number of hours you have to bill. Now, when you look at this, a lot of owners freak the F out. you got to sell a lot of hours. And then when you start factoring in the uncertainties of the marketplace, things get really, really stressful. It's funny that that happens simply because if you frequent any restaurant or bakery or really any small business, any business, you find out what their lease is just in rent. That's a lot of freaking eggs and pancakes and sandwiches and coffee to sell to break even. And what most people don't know, and we've seen this, is most folks think that, okay, I'm paying, we're going to make up a number. My rent's $5,000 a month plus utilities, et cetera, et cetera. Well, a lot of leases are structured in that the more the company makes, the more they pay in rent. And there was a, a shop that a friend of mine had, and he was retiring, so he was shutting it down. And I was thinking, you know, maybe this would be time for shop number two. Why not? It's, it's far enough away. It's, got, it's in a good demographic. And, but I wouldn't own the property. It was in a, a shopping center where there was a supermarket and a, a bunch of, of other things until I looked at the, the lease. And it started off at $7,600 a month. Okay, well, that's 7600 bucks. It's on a major road. All right. But they reserved the right, and you had to report what your monthly sales were. It's in the lease. And that they get to prorate. The more you make, the more they may. And this is not a new phenomenon. This is kind of standard in many retail leases. You know, that's kind of, all right, how are we doing on time? Oh, we just ticked over an hour. All right. And again, because I have to give credit where credit is due, if you wanted a more thorough understanding of that, uh, the information, Becky Witt, in the, in the way that she winds up doing it, again, because there are several different ways 
to calculate uh, what your labor rate is. They all they approach it from different angles, but they're essentially is the same. You have to be able to determine obviously your gross profit. I mean, there's a down and dirty way that if your break even for the month was thirty five thousand dollars and you had a sixty percent GP, you'd have to do eighty seven thousand five hundred dollars in sales to break even. Think about that. So our bonus program, right or wrong, I don't know if it's a good program or not. Am I getting a kickback? If I'm not getting a kickback, it's a horrible program. It's based off of uh, profit. Everybody's got a you know, guarantee. You know, some would argue, uh, I think, a pretty high guarantee. And then when we you know, crack that nut, everybody gets a small percentage of profit after that. So the last two, three months, it seems to have really kind of hit its stride in that everybody's kind of getting a third paycheck a month and not trying to put it over too much. But when we explained the nut concept or the break-even point, what that was, initially they thought the tax is not condescending in any way that, oh, 45000 a month. Okay, well, if we have a $45,000 a month, you know, we've been doing 100K a month, so you guys are clearing, you know, 60K or 55K. No, 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 no. That nut is profit. We have to profit 45K a month. Then anything above that. So really, really, we got to be more in that 80 to 90K a month, you know, generally speaking, to break even. And then over that is when you're going to start seeing that kickback. And the jaws dropped. The jaws dropped. Because then it's kind of starting to think about it and relate it to just your day-to-day, right? Your, your paycheck is... You know, two thousand dollars. Okay, do you really have two thousand dollars? I suppose technically, but while I pay my rent or my mortgage and my car payment and my insurance and food and daycare and oh, it's all of a sudden I got I got a couple hundred bucks to get me by till the next payday. Then that reality starts hitting. It's like okay, you could argue you profited. It gets dicey too, right? What's what are really required expenses versus choices and all that. But the general idea hit home that that $2,000 isn't really your profit. You got some stuff to pay and then that's what's left over. You know, maybe it's a thousand after, you know, your monthly income, you have a thousand dollars of profit that you can really choose what to do with. If you have $35,000 worth of fixed expenses, right? $35,000 is your nut. Your business is operating in a 60% gross profit. Again, because how we arrive at that figure, both he's saying, 50% on parts, 70% on labor. The average or what's known as blended or combined gross profit is going to be 60%. So what you do is you take 35,000 and you divide it by the reciprocal of 60%, which is 0.4. That leaves $87,500. That's what it's going to take to be able at to maintain a 60% GP. That's the reason why we come back to the example with the alignment machine, right? If you don't budget this money into your budget for the month, then how many shop owners actually have a budget? About as many as tax. <laughs> what happens is if your business has a 10% pre-tax net operating profit and you haven't budgeted for this and that you're paying, uh, let's say, $800 a month for your lease, you have to generate $80,000 a year to pay for it. You know, I mean, well, actually, it's more. It's ninety six thousand because eight, eight times 
Well, let's just say it's a thousand, so it's one hundred and twenty thousand. Yeah, bingo. Yeah, and I, I think those listening may misinterpret what's going on. That it's kind of like trying to defend shop owners, shop management. But if you guys listen to the prior episode, it would be very apparent to you that uh, Dutch is very much on your side as a technician, as as the perf- for the entire profession, shop owners, shops, techs, everything up, up, up. But these are the things we have to be aware of. So when you're going in to the office, you know, entertaining the idea of asking for a, a bump, consider where you're at already, what kind of a load that is on the business. Not that you're not a profit center, but understand the dynamics going on here. And I think that's the real point of this episode is to just hopefully open eyes technicians or if there's some shop management alike listening to this to open your eyes to the dynamics going on with revenue stream versus expenses cost of doing businesses cost of doing business and uh you know paying for your profit centers your help it's easy for somebody to say well you know he's an owner he's not i want techs to earn a really good living i want to see them earning more money than they are now I want them to do very well, but I want them to be armed with knowledge so that when they go in and discuss this, they have a basis to communicate a common understanding so they can have a basic understanding of the business. It would be great to pay every tech, you know, okay, so you're an entry-level tech. Here you go. You're going to start at 30. You're a seasoned tech. Here you go. You're going to start at 40. Oh, you're an A tech. We're, we're starting you at seventy five bucks an hour, and that would be great. That would be awesome. I would absolutely love it. But the realities of the marketplace are that they just don't support it. Has your shop gone up in, in its labor rate? Absolutely. Mine has. The last time, just to counter inflation. Yeah, mine has. It's getting to the point. Initially, the first thing that happens anytime a shop is struggling is you hear, raise your rates, raise your rates, and that does sales cures a lot. But the problem that we face is that it's not that we don't have anywhere else to go. In other words, raising your rate is terrific because sales cures problems, but there's going to be the time, and we're seeing it now, where just raising rates is going to eliminate a lot of people from getting your services performed. So how do you wind up making money? If Can you price yourself out of your market? You absolutely can. If you're a business owner and you know that your techs are working at 75% and they're on the property, can't you create more money by having them go to 80%, 85%, 90% productivity? It's almost a whole nother episode because you're kind of speaking my language here. I probably abuse this uh, analogy. I probably abuse it, but I cannot separate the organization from an organism that you have these systems. The systems are the front of house, the back of house, you know, management, whatever production. I can't separate that system. They have to work together. They have to operate together to generate, you know, not only a properly repaired vehicle, but also the profit required to sustain it and grow it. Maybe not just physically grow it, but be able to maintain equipment, replace equipment, improve equipment. And like you're saying, now we're focusing strictly on like revenue from labor. Okay, yeah, we could bump up the labor rate and some shops absolutely should be doing that. But on the flip side, like you're saying, now you're kind of getting in this, you know, certain level, certain uh, stratosphere of 
rate and you're still operating at the average 65% and you're being optimistic with 75% as management working on the business, wouldn't it make sense to start to, I suppose, start quoting Deming because that's what I do, removing the obstacles that prevent your team, your associates, your employees, your production crew from being able to increase that production level while still maintaining high quality. That, I mean, that's very Deming. I just read out of his freaking books. If you tell a tech that he costs $4 a minute, he's going to flip out and go, what the hell are you talking about? You have to record technician sales per minute. And you're like, yeah, right. Give me a break. Okay. Take the total sales, divide that by the number of hours. All your techs are available for work to get tech sales per hour. There are 60 minutes an hour, so divide the sales uh, per hour by 60 to get sales per minute, right? That's cool. Deduct lunches and 10-minute morning breaks and 10-minute afternoon breaks. Now pay attention. A shop with a $120 an hour labor rate that sells another $120 in parts will sell $240 an hour. Make sense? You following? A 30-minute wait for a tech to get to their first job of the day just cost me $120. $120 came right off the bottom line. I might as well just pull up my wallet, stroke him a check, piss it away. Because I just spent $120. I lost it. 20 minutes waiting for the, the office to sell a job. Guess what? It cost me 80 bucks. This is all goes back to productivity. 10 minutes looking for a battery charger, 40 bucks. Everybody in a shop as a tech ought to know this. Yeah, I think that. And then also, uh, I think Hunt Demarest brings this up in his podcast, Business by the Numbers. He'll bring this up where knowing kind of your... Not this won't be technically right, but your potential revenue by just saying techs are 100% efficient, 100% productive. You're not losing time. This is what you could do. And I struggle to say perfect because perfect would probably be production higher than 100%. But as an idea versus what you were really doing can be a very, very sobering information to take in. That could be a very sobering moment looking at those numbers like this is what we could be doing if everything is smooth. And again, dangerous word to say perfect. But for this discussion, I think it's okay. I think there's some you understood type things going on versus what it really is and how much lower it is exactly for reasons you're stating. Waiting on parts, got the wrong parts, breaks, the cell phone. You know, it's like, hey, I'm going to lose that bonus on Candy Crush. I got to quick play this quick. You know what I mean? Like those are realities and they take take away it adds up. It compounds. And I just agree with you wholeheartedly that everybody should be better aware of that. Ignorance of, the, of this stuff, of the realities of the business is crippling. Get this. Not only does it hurt the techs, it hurts the motoring public because they don't understand what it takes to do what we do. And every time you, you, you see a big box store offer a free diagnostic or every time you see somebody that that says that they're going to do it cheaper. And now remember, there's always going to be somebody who's going to do it like cheaper like we talked about before. It hurts the industry. I want you to imagine that there's no such thing anymore as health insurance. Health insurance disappears, ceases to exist. Poof, all health insurance goes away. We're just pretending. Okay. What happens to the price of health insurance uh, of the services that are provided. 
they're going to go down. They plummet, right? People have become insulated from the actual cost of medical care, in my view, because of insurance. Well, what do we see all the time, every time the economy gets bad, advertised on television, aftermarket warranties, extended warranties, and people start putting their money into that crap. Now, there, there are a couple of companies, a few companies that I know, very few, that are decent at what, what it is. But if you're going to wind up telling me that, that I'm going to wind up uh, having to pay you 50 or percent of, of labor while providing you all the other benefits that I, I pay you, you're going to be like that doctor who's not going to have any patients because nobody's going to be able to afford it. What you're going to do is you're going to develop a secondary black market of people that are going to wind up doing it for much, much, much less. So instead of getting aggravated about it, work with your employer, learn how to speak the language if you think he doesn't understand, go to another employer. And if they don't understand, if the, if you can't find somebody because you just know better, well, open up your own damn business. Nobody's stopping you. Go into debt like the rest of us. That's all. If you don't, if you think that you have a better idea of how to run this, I encourage you to do it. Hell, I'll send you my place. Just write me the big check. I don't care. You know, not not a problem. The point is that. You have to be realistic and you have to understand what it takes to run the business. That's the realities of it. And you can protest and pound your fists on the table and call me names and all of that. That's fine. But you can't look at any sort of accounting without being able to justify how you're arriving at the numbers, because ultimately the business must be sustainable and there are certain percentages that need to be hit. Now, I am in no way excusing any owner who runs roughshod over his employees and treats his employees like dirt. There is a mindset in corporate, in corporate America that says uh, you're building a business, not a family, and employees are components of that machine that you're building. And if they don't work out, if they don't uh, comply if they're unwilling to work for that amount of money. Next, get me somebody who will. I, it's inexcusable for me. But if you want that stuff to stop, don't go to work there. Don't complain to me how about you, you're, you're not getting as much money as you'd like or your hourly wage is depressed or any of that. And then you turn around and you push your toolbox into a corporate or franchise store. You're going to tell me you're getting treated like crap and you're going to work for a dealership? You think dealerships treat their guys great? Everybody wants to work for a dealership. Dealerships have no problem staffing their ranks because they have so many people that are overwhelmed, just, just they're pushing at the door to get in. They treat the people like shit generally. And you have a few techs that are the go-to guys that make money, consistently make money. But for the rest of it, it's no, it's six days a week. It's not two days in a row. This, you know, over and over and over again. You know, you, you don't want to work weekends. Great. That's a benefit. That benefit has a cost. So that means you might not get what you want per hour if you're willing to. But I get to be home every day with my, my kids at six o'clock. Yep. And I don't have to work weekends. No, you don't have to work weekends. Doesn't that have a value? But there are those that would fixate on just a dollar amount. And that's cool, too. If you want to tell me, here's your assignment for the day. If you want 50% of the labor rate, how does the shop make any money? 
shops charging a hundred dollars an hour. You want 50, go to the shop owner and tell him what bills he's to pay. Because if he raises his rate to cover his bills, now you're not getting 50 bucks an hour. You're getting 75, 80, 90, a hundred dollars an hour. That's cool. Tell me how the business supports it. Show me on paper in real world where the business is going to support that. And I'm willing to admit right off the top, if I'm wrong, screw it. I'll tell you I'm wrong. I had, if I'm wrong, sorry, I had no idea. You were 100% correct that that is something that is certainly possible to do. Looking forward to it. But remember, you can't cherry pick the area that you're doing it. I think, I think you tied this up perfectly. I don't know how the hell I stumbled into that. I don't know, but it was like a professional bow tire on the end. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you did it, but that was a wonderful way to wrap up this episode. Well, that's cool. I'm glad that I was able to do something. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure how the hell I did it or what it is I've done, but if you're happy, I'm happy, Matt. I am ecstatic. I really hope you can come back again and again and again, because every time... I, every time you just uh, unload an unbelievable amount of information, pertinent information, and just such a straight shooter. I so appreciate you gifting us this time. When the people from MA hear this, I'm probably going to be kicked out of the Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> the guys that are there that really despise me, we want the same things. I absolutely want techs to better themselves and to get paid more and to have the life that they really richly deserve and have earned but have been shortchanged out of. But you got to know your numbers. You don't get to disavow the calculations because you don't like them. Well, that's it. Me and my soapbox, I guess I'm done. <laughs> it's a terrific soapbox. If you see me that I'm assassinated, say something nice. When <laughs> <laughs> Lie and say something nice about that. Well, thank you so much again. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Thank you, Napa, for sponsoring. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you have uh, any ideas, suggestions, want to reach out, I'm easily accessed via social media or Podcast at gmail.com. And until next time. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com. <laughs>